Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Dealmakers podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Biotech Analyst at Cowan, and I'm super excited today to be joined by Devan Guva in this episode of What Happens in the Room Where Biopharma Deals Happen. We will discuss the internal view on deals from the buyer's perspective and what happens during the M&A process from both sides of the table. Devan joined Gilead Sciences in 2020 as Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Alliance Management. At Gilead, he's responsible for licensing, partnerships, investment, and acquisition transactions. Prior to Gilead, he was managing director at Lazard, where he spent 12 years providing financial and strategic advice to global biotech and pharma companies. Devang, always great to have you with us, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So I have to start by asking one of the obvious questions. Gilead's uh, one of the really premier great successes in biotech over the years. And the company for a long time has been now diversifying away from HIV and hepatitis toward oncology. And that transition really is now accelerated over the past two years. As you think about developing an oncology pipeline via external deals, what is the secret and how do you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we started on this path, this wasn't, you know, quite frankly, this wasn't a two-year path. It's been a ambition and goal of Gilead for, for many years. And the process started five plus years ago into our ambition of growing into an oncology business. You know, we have a world-class virology and hepatitis business, as you mentioned, it's, you know, 90%-ish of our revenues today, um, but we need to diversify if we're going to continue growing the company and using the resources we have to, to deliver shareholder value. And so, you know, five years ago, we had a plan. It took a lot of legwork and groundwork to, one, bring in the leadership and experience necessary to, uh, to be successful in oncology. Those skill sets and scientific expertise and commercial expertise are very different than what it takes to be successful in virology and hepatitis. Um, we needed a, you know, a leadership and board commitment to be bold, but really thoughtful here and how we thought about deal activity in this area. Um, we need to understand the landscape. And this is what, you know, took us three, four years to really get a really good understanding of you know, the areas of scientific interest for us in oncology, all of the players in those industry, you know, the key companies, key events that would shape that over the, um, over the coming years. So really defining the strategy and the opportunity set. And then for us, it was execution organizationally, you know, of course, starting with the business development team, but it really took a company-wide effort to engage and um, assess the various opportunities that we had. And, you know, with that sort of bold commitment and strategy focus with the right people at the table, we've been able to be really successful in bringing in a whole host of opportunities into our portfolio over the last two years. And as you, you talked about the importance of execution and the importance of having a strategic sort of overview, as you're looking externally, how, literally, how do you go about that? Do you draw up a list of target potential deals, or is it a little bit more opportunistically? Yeah, so it, it's a great question. Um, I would say, first of all, you can't be too over-prescriptive, right? You can't say, this year I'm going to do this deal, 
next year I'm going to do you know this type of deal. Um, it, it doesn't really work like that in practice because our industry is so uh, you know changing so rapidly. Um, new data sets emerge, and you have to be nimble, agile in order to um, you know adapt to those changing circumstances. However, you need a plan. You need a strategy of where are the areas I'm interested in, what are the areas I'm not interested in, and how do I do I understand those areas well enough so that I am best positioned to go after an opportunity or a deal when it's the right point in time for that company or opportunity for it to be, um, you know, for a, for a partnership or an acquisition to make sense. And so that takes a lot of legwork and planning and understanding the landscape. And then data emerges, right? We can't predict how all of the data will emerge in a specific, you know, for a specific target or a specific area within oncology. Um, but we need to be ready to adapt as soon as it does. And that's where sort of the strategy and planning becomes critical for our success. And so it sounds like, do you map the landscape ahead of time and you have negotiations and you build relationships and then you prioritize them and flex and move to more opportunistic sort of mode based on data? Yeah, that, that, that's a good summary. You know, we, we find an area that we're interested in. We'll get to know all 100 companies in that area really understand the differentiation between each of them, start whittling them down. And then as certain data emerges, or if we're ready to proceed with a transaction at that point, we'll think about, does it make sense for us to wait for clinical validation of, you know, X, Y target, or are we willing to, you know, some of the preclinical data and biology lineup that we're willing to take more risk on that one and, and move earlier. So there's different parameters, but we'll first and foremost, we need to understand the area inside and out, and then based on the data and, and the science, you know, when we're ready to, uh, to pounce, we're, we'll sort of be well positioned to do so. And what, what's the biggest challenge to then consummating a deal, whether it's an M&A deal or, or a partnership deal? Is it getting in, in, internal buy-in and championship and alignment, or is it ultimately getting the support and interest from the external party? It's a good question. I think that the, you know, the biggest challenge is probably getting the internal alignment, um, you know, but we have a pretty nimble and flexible structure here, and a, a mentality that we want to be, you know, on the cutting edge. And people acknowledge that there's always going to be risk in any deal, just like there's risk with any internal program. And so, you know, some people like to handicap internal versus external. Um, you know, we have to acknowledge that everything comes with risk, and we live in an industry where you know, you make certain bets and the one thing you know is all of them will not work as you go forward and you need to embrace that challenge. And so once you can do that, I think you can sort of unlock some of the barriers to doing deals and take a portfolio perspective on them. You know, when you map out our internal portfolio, how will these deals that we add in here sort of round out or rebalance or improve or enhance the existing portfolio that we have? Terrific. I, I really like that answer. It really resonates and really jives with what we've been hearing and across the, the series so far. So let me ask you a question that's a little bit more unique for your experience between banking and obviously being internally at one of the, the marquee big companies in the space. Uh, in oncology, we've been in the seller's market. There are many suitors hunting for deals, but uh, as they're trying to really bolster their, their pipeline, are there enough companies willing to be bought when you think about M&A? Yeah, I don't think the issue is supply, actually, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we track these metrics when I was at Lazard and, you know, I think over the last 
you know, five to 10 years, right? There's roughly 40 M&A deals a year over, you know, call it $50 million up front or so. Um, and, you know, if my recollection of the stats are right, it's, you know, roughly split, split equally in those 40 deals between oncology, rare diseases, and sort of all other therapeutic areas. So what, that leaves us 10 or 15 deals a year in oncology that happen. You know, we probably get inbounds on 200 to 250 potential deals a year. Um, and the vast majority of those, no strategic transaction happens. So I don't think the issue is supply as, as much as it is, you know, capacity within companies like Gilead to absorb potential transactions, you know, technical diligence and risk, as well as valuation that prevents those deals from happening. It's not a lack of opportunities outside, and that, which is a good thing. I think it's great that we have so much capital going into the industry to fund great new ideas. And, you know, at the right time, those companies will mature where probably a strategic transaction does happen. But um, right now, the issue isn't, you know, there's a lack of great opportunities out there. And what about from, I would say, late stage or mid clinical stage deals, or companies willing to be acquired? How is that supply looking? Yeah, you know, there's, within oncology, there's a lot of companies in sort of early to mid clinical stages, generally when we're, you know, looking at potential targets that are, you know, in the middle of that, we're looking at their next inflection point, right? You know, the, the next readout or data card is going to turn in six months, 12 months, 18 months or so. And that's usually when the right time is. And, you know, because oncology is such a difficult area, you know, naturally more company, you know, more of those data readouts turn out negative rather than positive. And so that inherently limits the amount of transactions that we could ultimately pursue. And as you think about the competitive landscape from the, the buyers or the acquirers, how can a company make themselves more attractive as a collaborator uh, and really stand out from the competition to really entice that, that uh, seller to, to deal and, and, and partner with you? Yeah, so, so now you're getting into our secret sauce here at Gilead. But look, I, people talk a lot about, about you know, needing to be flexible and identify win-win situations for partner and um, for each partner. And I think that's all true and incredibly important. And, you know, largely that's table stakes for being a good partner in the industry. Um, so I think that's definitely important. What I think has been most valuable for us and has differentiated us as a partner is one, you know, our senior leaders are involved in the assessment and in the diligence and meeting with our companies. Um, and they're throughout the entire process. Um, so we're able to establish really trusted relationships, you know, C-suite to C-suite between our companies when we're engaging in a partnership. You know, there's also a understanding that, you know, being open and transparent about how we're thinking solves a lot of the issues and make sure that both parties are on the same plane. So, you know, what are our must-haves in the deal? What are the risks that we see? Because going into a partnership and not knowing how the other party is thinking about it creates a whole misalignment of incentives and motivations and so on. Um, and so our approach is being as transparent as we can. And everyone's mature and understands that people look at risks in a different way. And I feel like that's been very important for us. What is, and I'm going to move over now, maybe talk a little bit about valuation and, you know, how important is valuation and how do you assess valuation for deals? Do, do you do a model for each deal or 
models and valuations are more important for late stage deals and early stage deals are much more about technology capabilities uh, and novel assets, novel targets. I would say for anything that's sort of mid-stage in the clinic or beyond, we definitely have a model for each of those deals. And we understand, you know, what is the target product profile we're going after? What does the development plan look like? What is the commercial opportunity per indication and so on? And so we'll do your typical risk-adjusted DCF analysis. You know, we run sort of, you know, basic version of sort of Monte Carlo type simulations of various outcomes that could happen with a program and understanding what that implies for the upside and, you know, risk and reward for a potential deal. We look at a whole host of sensitivity. So we do that for, you know, everything I would say, you know, phase two onwards, certainly. Um, you know, when you're going earlier than that, you start to get to a lot of false precision on trying to model what a preclinical asset or a phase one asset looks like, you, you know, at that point, you don't even know the disease areas or tumor types you're going to go after um, and so on. And so it's, it's too much false precision for doing that. So we do look at strategic value. We look at comparable companies and transactions that have happened in that space to give us a sense there. But we also look at, you know, as you say, strategic value, right? You know, what do we think about the you know, productivity of this engine, you know, how if we're looking at a platform deal, how many INDs do we think we're going to get out of that? And we know what our cost basis is for generating a preclinical molecule or something that's IND ready. So we look at sort of less um, rigorous, I guess, financial metrics for those very early deals. And we try to triangulate based on a variety of factors. Yeah, there's a, uh, the process of paralysis by analysis. You're trying to be, uh, you're trying to be practical when you're looking early stage. Exactly, exactly. And do do every deal does every deal need to be accretive or cash flow positive or is it okay for some deals to be strategic because you got to bring in capability and take a longer term sort of portfolio view? When we're thinking about deals, uh, let me start with you know at the end of the day you know the management and board at Gilead is you know stewards of our shareholders' capital, right? So we need to make sure we are being incredibly responsible and disciplined on how we allocate that capital for our business. Uh, so when we think about, you know, sizable transactions or mid-stage transactions and beyond, absolutely, you know, a deal needs, you know, the value of, that we're paying has to be less than the intrinsic value of that opportunity for us. And you can look at that in different ways, but we do hold ourselves to, you know, key financial criteria in doing that. And, you know, largely relying on a, as I mentioned, that DCF analysis and various scenario analyses that we think about for that. Um, but then you get to the question of, you know, in our industry, we've seen over the last few years, you know, billion dollar deals for preclinical platform companies, right? And preclinical MA. So how are you coming up with that value? And I think there are other ways to assess it, right? The strategic value, you know, needing to get into a there, you know, a technology modality that's going to be, you know, a huge uh, driver of our industry for decades and decades to come, you know, pipeline productivity or IND productivity. Um, there's a lot of ways to assess that value where once again, may not be qualitative, hard to hold yourself to a cash flow or return on invested capital type metric there. Um, but we need to be still thoughtful about how we um, deploy our capital and disciplined in the way that we do that. Absolutely. And, and you know, what, one of the things that we've been talking to investors about, and when we talk about investors, of course, there's three different 
types of investors. Those are generalist investors who are kind of value. There's GARP. And then even within biotech, you have people investing, you know, long, short people going long only. And then people are kind of, you know, buying. There's a, a new investment theme of buy the potential takeouts versus those who are buying the, the takers, right? Mm -hmm. And the difference pulls and puts between the two of them in a, in a, in a broad landscape. And one of the points that we've been, um, you know, talking about is the importance of taking risks, the importance of going early. Not every deal should be accretive immediately. Uh, if every deal works, does, do companies, they're either brilliant or are they taking enough risk and do they overpay? And then the question is, can you underpay and go early and build value that way? What, what's your, what, what's your view about all that topic? No, I, I, I look, I, I agree. You need to have a sort of a multimodal type of an approach, right? It's, it's not one size fits all for deals. For early deals, you think about it differently. You structure them differently. Um, for later stage deals, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at deals in our sector, actually virtually none of them are creative from day one, right? It's just like a pipeline asset in your portfolio. If I'm starting you know, a, a new phase one study for a new drug in our pipeline, inherently that's going to be diluted for 10 years, right? Until it gets to market and recoups its financial value. But that's the way our industry works is you take risk for that longer term reward. And you need to think about that when doing deals as well. Um, you know, but there are going to be different types of risks associated with early deals and, and late later deals and the amount of capital you're willing to deploy for each of those. And in your case, how do you measure success of deals? Is it based on progress? Is it based on financial metrics, which are, to your point, they're not, they're not going to be realized for a few years, you know, in the future? Yeah, we, we review our transactions with our, you know, leadership team and board on a, on a regular basis and hold ourselves very accountable to the progress of those deals. And as you say, you know, I can't look at the financial returns of my phase one deal one year from now or two years from now. It takes, um, you know, a different timeline for that. Um, but we look at a bunch of things. We look at, you know, what are the timelines we um, imagined or presented to the board and management when we did a deal? Are we sticking to those timelines? Are we sticking to that development plan? You know, the risk on each of the studies, have we, you know, when we said something was, uh, you know, a certain probability, have we hit that or we, um, or, or did we, uh, or did we not? How have those probabilities changed as we've gotten further in development? You know, how have the costs been relative to what we expected when we did the deal? Um, and then other financial, you know, for commercial stage deals or late stage deals, of course, we look at then, you know, what is the revenue forecast versus what we said at the time of the deal. So we look across a whole host of characteristics. Um, and then, you know, on the partnership side, one of the things that we track on a, you know, monthly or quarterly basis is, you know, what, how is the health of the collaboration overall going? You know, how are the scientific teams working together? Are we having that progress that we assumed? Um, is there, you know, we look at all of those factors as well, sort of the some of the you know less tangible elements of the success of some of these research collaborations, and that's based on publication. Is it based on presentation? It's based on judgment from the project leaders and and sort of research heads on how uh, how certain things are happening. And then of course we have project you know goals and deadlines and uh, targets that we set, and are we hitting those or not? Great. I, I, that, that's I, I love that answer because a lot of times we don't actually hear that. So it's actually nice to hear the emphasis on that. 
Let's tap into your a little bit of your prior experience at Lazard, and which is obviously relevant to what you're seeing in your seat these days too. When, when you're thinking about biotech boards who are deciding to sell their company, how do they arrive at that decision? Is it, is it based on incoming, you know, incoming, you know, reaches to them? Is it based on this was always prepped for sale and they were never contemplating to go it alone? Is it based on changing uh, landscape? Is it based on need? Yeah. So a, a good board isn't preparing a company for sale. It's, preparing a company to continue generating value, you know, through development of their programs, technologies, and so on. Um, in our sector, and, you know, this has been maybe a shift from how it was 10 or 15 years ago, um, is that now, you know, especially with public companies, 80% of the time or 90% of the time, the approaches are inbound to the company, not outbound. So it's not a company starting a sale process without existing interest. It's generally somebody makes an unsolicited approach. And you can you know, read through the 14 D9s and see 80 to 90% of that. It's a strategic company, you know, a large pharma or big biotech company coming in with an unsolicited proposal with a specific price on which they would do a deal. Now, when the board is you know, debating and deliberating on that offer, they're looking at a, you know, a range of factors. So one is the intrinsic value of the company and really on a standalone basis with their own resources, right? So this becomes you know, incredibly important in you know, areas like oncology where you know, the resources required to develop a molecule to its fullest extent are you know, non-trivial and it takes a significant amount of investment. And so when you capture the timelines, the expenses, the build out that that needs to take versus the offer price that you're being offered, that's something that you need to deliberate. Um, they'll also be looking at the capital markets and dilution risk, right? If you're going to continue moving something forward, you need to think about how much capital will I be needing to raise? How dilutive will that be to my shareholders? And what is the market risk going forward? Especially in today's environment where you've seen the drawdown since February, you know, people need to be considering that where is the market going as well? Um, and then I think the last two points I would say is, they look at their inflection points. So what is the time to my next value creation event? What is the risk reward associated with that? And then finally, what is the competitive landscape out there, right? If I don't do this deal today, I need to be worried about, you know, A, B, C, D companies also who are in this area and what they could do um, and how that may impact me. And so you bring up a really good point in, in biotech there's a, a perception among investors and i'm going to grossly generalize so I, I i i beg for forgiveness ahead of time but i'll apologize later there's a, a view that every company is for sale um when we talk to boards and management teams that's certainly not our impression and what you're saying is essentially reaffirming that in 80 90 of cases it's actually an outreach what what happens when a company is then approached from a buyer and I believe there's two different approaches. One is very informal and it's not formal. And another one is formal. Um, what's the difference with respect to fiduciary duty and, and what happens after that? Yeah, so, you know, informal outreach happens all the time, right? That's our everyday conversations with companies on, you know, what are their, you know, how are they thinking about their strategic plans going forward? And, you know, how could we contemplate partnering? Um, the you know, real fiduciary duty starts with when a formal, you know, bona fide formal offer is received, right? With 
you know, a specific price per share or valuation range that a company is thinking about, then there is a duty to review that with your board um, and at least solicit their feedback on, you know, how we're thinking about that and undergo that, you know, formal assessment that I was talking about in terms of, you know, review on intrinsic value, risks, capital needed, you know, inflection points coming up, competition, and so on, and really assess how you want to respond to such an offer. I mean, in our sector, you know, hostile transactions are relatively few and far between, you know, maybe you see one every two or three years or so. Um, they don't happen very often because part of that is, you know, we live in an environment where partnering is so critical and having positive and collaborative relationships is so critical. No one wants to damage their reputation. They're going to, you know, be very careful before doing such a thing. Um, and so, you know, the tactics boards take is either a just say no sort of approach where, you know, we're not interested, we see much more value, you know, in our, in our business than your offer is reflecting and thanks, but no thanks is sort of the, you know, general approach until somebody reaches that level that, uh, you know, encourages them to engage in, uh, you know, more substantive transaction discussions. And, and the definition of a formal offer, it has to have a price per share or valuation range, and it's got to be in writing. Usually it'll have to be in writing. I mean, people do start with verbal offers. Um, usually, you know, you'll have a CEO to CEO conversation or a head of business development to head of business development conversation. Um, but usually that will be followed with a formal offer in writing um, to the extent possible. And do in the 80 to 90% of cases when you have an inbound offer, are the companies surprised to receive it or they do, are they sort of, they, they know it's coming and uh, because there's been a lot of interaction already or yeah. how, how frequent is it that it just really comes it's, it's, Yeah, really good question. So um, usually it's, it's not so unexpected. Um, usually where, you know, people have enough interest and conviction in making an offer when usually there's interactions between the companies for months and months, if not years before that period of time. You know, oftentimes it's a company starting a partnering process, right? That they want to find a co-development or co-commercialization partner for a program. Um, and ultimately the, you know, large biotech or pharma will decide, hey, we'd rather own this than partner with it. And so it's not so, you know, it, it doesn't come out of the blue very often. Usually there's some sort of process or partnering discussions that precipitate that flip into an M&A discussion. So let's maybe move and talk about the 10 to 20% of cases where there is a process. There is a, a seller directed, board directed M&A process. What, how does that process actually, how is it being conducted? What are the milestones and how long does it normally take? Usually how that process is conducted is, you know, through an investment bank, you'll, you know, hire one of the, uh, you know, investment banking firms that you have, you know, strong relationships with, that the, has credibility with the board, and they will reach out to, you know, anywhere from three or four parties that you may be in active partnering discussions with, or they'll go through a sort of broad auction type of process where they're reaching out to maybe 15 or 25 potential buyers for the company. Um, you know, Usually there's some initial sort of non-confidential or sort of modestly confidential due diligence that takes place before they'll ask for sort of initial indications of interest for a potential transaction before going to sort of a second step of the process where there's a much more rigorous due diligence process that takes place over, 
you know, call it four to eight weeks or so before final offers are ultimately received. You know, in an ideal situation, you probably want that M&A process to take, you know, no longer than three to four or five months before you, you know, have a final offer on the terms and then you're just negotiating contracts and so on. And, you know, public company contracts are incredibly simple and quick to negotiate. Private company where they're structuring and various shareholder dynamics, those take a little bit longer. Um, all right, that, that's really terrific and, and insightful. I think there's a lot of, uh, we always get a lot of questions about what the difference is and how the different processes work and how long it takes. So then we can't talk about uh, offense or enticing someone to acquire you then in cases where you do get an offer and at that point you're looking for defense. Uh, the company decides they're not interested in selling. How does that work? How does the defense strategy work? Yeah, I think usually, you know, the most common defense is just say no, right? Yeah, you know, we're not interested. We see our path is much brighter than the offer that you're proposing. You know, we're going to continue sticking it through, funding the company and reaching these milestones. And thank you for your interest, but we're not interested today. That's generally the approach. I mean, there's certainly other tactics that people can employ, poison pills, or maybe engaging in a partnering transaction instead of an M&A transaction. Um, but usually the, the typical convention is, you know, a CEO and board after review with the board of that offer and, you know, the relative merits and, and risks of it will just say, you know, no, we're not interested or no, we're not interested unless your offer is at a certain level that's much higher than where you are today. And usually when they say just say no post review, the conclusions are that the valuation is insufficient. It, it needs to have an underpinning that the offer is too low or can there be other reasons? No, that's exactly right. Usually it's a matter of price, right? You know, especially for a public company, you know, as your fiduciary duty is to your public shareholders, there is a price at which you, you know, should theoretically be contemplating an M&A offer, um, especially if it's an all cash offer from, um, from a large company. Um, and so usually it's an indication of, you know, the price is just not meeting what our internal valuation of our company is. Okay, great. So let's move to my favorite part of the podcast, which is a little bit of the rapid fire, uh, getting to know you with a little humor and a personal touch. So maybe Devan, let's start. What's your favorite sport and why? So I, I would say I have two favorite sports. Favorite sport to play because I can actually do it a little bit is golf. Um, I've been playing for a long time. I find it very relaxing, enjoyable, but still very competitive. Um, however, my favorite sport to watch is not golf, given <laughs> the speed at which it moves, and is rather basketball. I'm a, I'm a huge NBA fan. You know, the Warriors are here, but I'm, I've actually grew up as an as a LA Lakers fan. And so that's my, uh, despite how the team is doing this year, that's my favorite sport to watch. So if I knew you were a Lakers fan, I think I, I might have had to disclose that I'm a Celtics fan way ahead of time. <laughs> I don't think you need to worry about the Celtics anymore. <laughs> exactly. And last week was a little bit of a beatdown uh, to the Celtics. <laughs> I think the Celtics are about to call me to join them. I think that's kind of where they are. I, uh, I've been taking golf lessons. I can tell you that the ball's not worried when, <laughs> when I'm trying to hit it. It's pretty safe. Um, favorite TV show? What's, what genre and what show? Yeah. I don't know if I would consider this my favorite, but what we're watching a lot right now is Succession. Um, I don't know if you've seen that's the HBO show about the, the sort of media family who's running a company. It's a 
quite a dysfunctional family that's sort of running it and um, the dynamic sort of power dynamics within that family. I really enjoy it because it's probably one of the first shows I can remember where I don't like a single character in it. You're not rooting for anybody really. And it's a bit cringe in some of the things that they say, but it's just fascinating in the way that they interact with one another. And so I'm, you know, I don't think it's my favorite show, but I'm, I'm kind of hooked to it right now. Yeah. Do you, did you ever watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? What's your, your thoughts on that show? I actually, I've never, I've never been a huge Curb fan or I've never gotten into it, I should say. And so I, I didn't watch that one this closely. Yeah, because both of those, you mentioned the word cringe. I, I can't watch either one of those. Secession to me is just, there's just too much um, conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I find that I'm exhausted after watching it. Exactly, exactly. Finally, what's your happy place in, in life and, and why is that? The most exciting place, I would say, is maybe in the boardroom during an important M&A deal. You know, discussing those with the board is really energizing and fun and exciting and going through that process, you know, how quickly it moves is, um, is really energizing for me. Um, on the flip side, you know, once you're through with that, I have two young kids. So anytime we can get to the beach in, you know, Hawaii or Mexico or somewhere like that, that's sort of, you know, the best relaxation I can have is with my family. Yeah. And, and I, I imagine you're probably energized at board meetings, assuming they go well once they're done. <laughs> not yeah, much exactly. well, they're not going well. Exactly. Exactly. Great, Devang. Thanks so much for joining us. That was great to see you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.